Hi, welcome everyone. This is Andy Wilson, uh, once again from The Traveller in the Evening here on Substack. If you don't know The Traveller in the Evening, uh, search for it on Substack and please do subscribe, as they say. Um, this evening I have with me the scholar, historian and all-round good guy Sam Hamad, who I met through, I think, through politics, but have a long history of, uh, of debating with Sam and uh, one thing and another. And recently, I've been very interested. I've written a little bit about it on Substack. I'm about to write significantly more. But I've been very interested in questions to do with, uh, it's called Chaos Camp, the chaos war at the beginning of creation, which is reflected in Genesis. Specifically, I'm interested in the Old Testament book of Job, in which the dragon monster Leviathan appears. And Leviathan is very much a product of Canaanite mythology and religion, uh, which is imported into uh, Judaism. Uh, but in thinking about that, I was talking to Sam about a few related issues, and Sam had a lot of things of interest to say about, about the religion of the region and its syncretic nature and the sharing of cultures and traditions and so on and so forth. So first of all, uh, thank you very much for joining me tonight, Sam. And Maybe just to get the ball rolling, I'll just ask you about, well, I was going to say your specific interest is in Egyptian religion and mythology, but, it, but it's not. It goes wider than that. But I think that's your uh, specific expertise. So I just want to ask you as a kickoff question of how you see Egyptian tradition in, in relation to the rest of the region. Because, of course, for example, you know, the, the Greeks very much saluted Egyptian knowledge, history, and mythology, and arguably imported a lot more of it than is normally, you know, admitted. But nevertheless, how do you see the relationship between Egypt and the other powers of the region and the other countries and, and cultures of the region? Is is Egypt, in a sense, a special case because of its closer connection to Africa, or not? Yeah, yeah. That's a very important point because it is a transcontinental country, meaning that it has a, a, an inherent syncretism already between uh, African traditions, cultures, and Asian or Near Eastern cultures, and it has always been the case. I think Egypt is special in many ways, and I'm, and just for the listeners to know, I am myself half Egyptian, I'm a Scottish Egyptian person, and that is how I became interested in uh, Egypt. But even if I wasn't Scottish Egyptian, I think Egypt is a, a special case when it comes to that region um, for numerous reasons, not just because of the, the archaeological reasons, which are astounding. Obviously, it's unmatched in terms of the, the manner in which its ancient civilization has been preserved. But e even though there were, of course, very important in terms of the development of civilization and the development of what you would call the the, the civilizational narratives. Um, there were contemporaneous civilizations such as the Sumerians, of course, being probably the strongest. I think Egypt stands out in that much more of its ancient, and I can't stress that enough, you're going back to the early dynastic period, you're going back 6,000 years, 7,000 years, and the understanding of the pantheon and what you alluded to in your question. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, 
One thing I just want to pick up on very quickly before we proceed is a point you made to me in an earlier discussion about um, you know, from an external point of view, there's a thing called Egypt with an Egyptian religion. But of course, in, in reality, as you said to me a few weeks ago, there's actually a series of, of myths, cultures, creation, this overlapping. And I think to some extent, obviously, that reflects the uh, intercontinental nature of Egypt, the division between the African and Mediterranean, um, you know, uh, the Delta, Egyptian Delta, that's strongly reflected in that. But nevertheless, it is a series of overlapping mythologies. And I guess the other thing, which is blatantly obvious uh, to people who know anything about the region, but just just to kind of uh, set the scene a little, is that you've got Egyptian down there at, at one end of the region, and at the other end, as you said, uh, Assyrians, later Babylonians, whatever. Kind of, so you have this north-south, and then the region in between is sort of hotly contested for, for over you know, a series of millennia, really, until the, the Greeks and then the Romans arrive. And in the course of that, that's kind of, I think, the period we're uh, most interested in. I mean, your starting point is very much uh, at the Egyptian end, end of that, if you like. And mine is somewhere in between in the sense that I was trying to get at some aspects of Jewish history, myth, religion, the Leviathan thing I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And of course, the people of that in that middle region are constantly getting batted about between the two big military imperial powers of the time, Egypt at one end, Eurasyrians and whatever at the other end of it. Um, I've got this amazing book, actually, which is about the region, uh, Canaan and around there, um, and the seals that were produced uh, from about 1200 BC for the next few hundred years, and all the evidence in there of Egyptian iconography used, you know, by the Jews, mm-hmm. for so that region in the middle is, is torn between uh, bigger powers. So I guess if we could get a bit more into the details, I could ask about creation myths because the yeah. um, the Leviathan business is is basically they call it Ugaritic based on findings around the town of Ugarit. Is that correct? I mean, it's not. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. not. So they talk about an Ugaritic culture, um, but it, within that culture, there's a creation myth which involves the god Baal uh, acting on behalf of a a superior god, El, and Baal Mm -hmm. and his crew defeat a sea monster on behalf of El, and the sea monster represents... This is the chaos camp bit I was was on about. The Mm -hmm. sea monster, um, who is called the Twisted Snake, even in Ugarit, which translates as, I think in Ugaritic, I can't pronounce it, but Lotan, who becomes Leviathan, Mm -hmm in the Hebrew, but the twisted yep. snake and his pal, who's a beast of some kind, uh, not necessarily a sea beast, actually, but there's Yam, the, the sea god, uh, there's Leviathan and, and his allies are on the chaos side of the equation, and then Baal and his allies make war on Leviathan and Yam um, and defeat chaos. And once they've defeated chaos, Baal is enthroned as Lord um, and that's a myth that the, the, they had rituals around that every year. Mm-hmm. And the Jews inherited a lot of those rituals. So a lot of the detail just passes over into early Judaism. So one question that occurs to me, if we're going to talk about the overlap in these myths, is to ask you about Egyptian creation myths, because there are several Maybe you could say something about the competing or overlapping myths yeah, in relation to chaos. 
from what you've said there, the, <clears throat> the overlap is extraordinary. You're perfectly correct to say that there are different creation myths regarding Egypt. But really there is, remarkably, to contradict even myself, because I like to speak of Egyptian religions and Egyptian civilizations and so on and so forth, because you're talking about such a long period of time. It would be absurd to imagine that one civilization could exist for 6,000 years, let alone 8,000 years. But th there is one that predominates throughout around 6,000 years, certainly from the early dynastic period, which for, for people who might not know, the early dynastic period simply means when Egypt was unified into one nation state uh, under the Scorpion King, as it was so-called. Again, he might not exist, but that's the myth of Egypt's creation as a nation state, not of the creation myth. But the creation myth is that, to put it very simply, essentially Ra, the sun god, was lifted out of primordial waters of complete non-existence. The Egyptian term for it is actually better than that, but of course I've forgotten it. But it, it essentially means like non-existence. And he is lifted out of that, and he, he obviously represents the sun, and thus creates everything. However, without going into too much detail, because again, there are with Egypt, there are so many things that can't, because of the, the period of time you're talking about, because of gaps in the knowledge that people simply just don't know, it's, it's easier just to, to go straight to the antithesis of, of Ra, which is Apophis, Apep, I'll call him Apophis, since that is how he's most commonly known, that is the Hellenization of, his, of the name. Apep was like Leviathan, a sea-dwelling monster, a, a, a giant snake. With a cobra's head, usually depicted as with a cobra's head. Not, it's not always so clear that it's a cobra. Um, it, again, going with, with what you might call the common origin myth, there was a great battle between Ra and Apep. And during this battle, Ra had to call upon other gods. Some might say that he created the other gods. The most significant god he created at this point was Set, who would later on become demonised. He, he would himself become an evil god, so to speak, in the Egyptian pantheons. But he became associated, Set, as a god of storms because mm -hmm. his large battles with... Uh, when Apep moved, he caused earthquakes. He caused the, the world to shake. It's how it, how it was put by the ancient Egyptians. So when Set battled him on behalf of Ra... This would cause catastrophic earthquakes. Eventually, Set pierces Apep with a spear. Doesn't kill Apep because Apep, in this timeline, and that, and maybe we'll get on to that later and how Egyptians conceived of time, which was not something that modern people might appreciate, Apep would return and return again. In fact, he is essentially cognate with the Aruberos, the self-eating serpent, and as is Egyptian time in general. But again, we'll get onto that later. Possibly. Um, so you can probably already see some crossover there. Yeah. In, in terms of how you track myths through time and their relationship to one another, you sort of pick out the key features of a myth or a series of myths or a group of myths and plot how they evolve over time and they often change positions and that kind of thing, um, which is just a long-winded way of saying that in, in terms of the 
chaos camp, Leviathan and all that, some of the key um, parameters, if you like, are one, I think the storm god business is a really key thing, actually. Baal was a storm god, if I recall correctly, but whenever this chaos serpent is being defeated, it's usually by some kind of storm god. And of course, Yahweh was originally a kind of storm god. And um, so for one reason or another, I mean, I find it interesting, by the way, because in the book of Job, which is my point of departure, mm-hmm. um, and when they tell the story in the Ugaritic Canaanite myth of this big war, Baal comes descending down in a storm and drops onto the head of Leviathan and they, they slug it out and all that. But in the book of Job, when God is talking to Job, he, he speaks from out of the whirlwind. And the first thing he talks about is Leviathan and Behemoth. Uh, yeah. Leviathan's buddy. So this storm god thing, I think, is really, really interesting and important. Um, and in terms of our discussion, that, that's one thing, storm gods in the background. Second thing is, in this creation myth, my understanding, and I can't remember which version of Egyptian myth I'm, I'm talking about, my understanding is that the story begins with the first gods arriving on a hillock that appears within the primordial sea or something like that. Maybe that's a different version, but that's my understanding. And that reminds me that a second aspect of all this that's really important is this sea business. So in the Baal myth, in the Canaanite myth, Baal fights the sea monster, Yam, with Leviathan and so on. Um, So the sea thing is really important because it represents the primordial chaos. Mm -hmm. And it's long been believed that the story in Genesis of God hovering over the deep, um, you know, right at the beginning of Genesis, is a reflection of the Babylonian myth of uh, uh, Tiamat, and the same sort of story be, being told there, but there, the primordial sea is called Abzu, and it's mm-hmm. considered as chaos. So the idea is that, whereas if you talk to a punter today, these secularists will say, you know, the story of creation in Genesis, they always assume that it's a story of God, Yahweh, creating the world ex nihilo, literally from nothing. Uh, but it isn't, you know, in Genesis itself, that, that's not what's said. There is this primordial seed that's certainly there in the Babylonian myth. Um, and, uh, as I yeah. say, the Babylonian myth is, has long been treated as the immediate precursor to the Jewish myth, and presumably because the Jews were exiled to Babylon, as we, as we all know. But in fact, the Jewish myth goes back to before Babylon. It was picked up before then. And, and the Canaanite Ugaritic myth is, is actually the primary one here in terms mm-hmm. of Jewish development. But that's the second aspect of it, this sea which pre-exists creation so that God's role in this story, and, 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 and I'm talking here in terms of the second parameter of the myth, uh, God's role here is not to create things out of, out of nothing, but to create order out of chaos. Absolutely. Yeah, and in, in the Egyptian mythology, everything is microcosmic which it's a really key component of it so when you talk about the creation myth that was something that that was upkept on a daily basis and we can maybe get onto that later but for for example apophis's name one of his names was the lord of chaos uh literally translated as lord of chaos um and unlike set for example who was worshipped but Ramses II, probably the greatest of all pharaohs, 
worshipped set, uh, Menevis Garrison's worshipped set. So we, we know that set had a benevolent form at some point in Egyptian so-called mythology. Um, the only time that Apophis that he, he, Apophis was given to the names of the Hyksos rulers. Are you familiar with the Hyksos and their? Yeah, I, um, tell us more about it though. But but my understanding is that the, the the Hyksos came from the north into Egypt and were kind of foreign rulers for a period. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge debate in history and archaeology as to who the Hyksos were and where they came from. Some people think that they were proto 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 Turkic peoples. Some people think that they were Western Semitic peoples. Other people think that they were Indo-Aryans of some kind. It's really not known, and there's not one good argument uh, conclusively for one. It doesn't really matter. All that we do know is that they were foreign to Egypt, but they did form uh, what is known in, uh, as the Second Intermediate Period in Egyptian history, in which, again, for, for people who might not know, in Egyptian history, at intermediate periods, periods where Egyptians didn't rule Egypt, or when Egypt was split again between Upper and Lower Egypt. And in the Second Intermediate Period, Egypt, Egypt had been taken over by people called the Hyksos, and they were given names like Apophis the first, and names like Beloved of Apophis. Because again, you're going like now 2,000 odd years since... Yeah, I was going to ask you what exact what is the period? Well, you've given us the periodization. What are the dates of the second, approximately of the second intermediate period? So, so proto dynastic Egypt was about six thousand years ago. The second intermediate period was probably so that's fourteenth to seventeenth dynasty. So you're talking uh, four thousand, three thousand years ago, something like that. So they were associated with, and at that point, Set had become part of the Osiris mythology and demonized the archaeological record. Backs it up. They did worship Set. They they created temples of Set, the Hyksos, and for some reason, unbeknownst to anybody, they had some sort of affinity with Set. But the Egyptians themselves associated them with Apophis, with chaos, and it's probably quite easy to see why because to them at the time it, it, it seemed like the end of Egyptian civilization because these were foreign rulers obviously as they worshipped some Egyptian gods they took on some Egyptian customs but we can only assume and very little known that they introduced non-Egyptian elements to Egypt which were not well liked especially by the structures, which were like the, the priests, were in some ways more important than Pharaoh. But just to get on to the point about chaos, and stop me, by the way, if I'm going too far. You are not. Like, too far ahead. <laughs> that really, the so you mentioned a mound that the, the gods appeared in. Yeah, that's one later interpretation of the Egyptian creation myth. But actually, creation and destruction were not hugely important in Egypt. Maintenance was important. If you look in at all of the maintaining of order was much more important than, than the creation and the destruction. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, destruction is what comes if you don't maintain order, or so we think. We don't actually know. But because they never actually said what would happen if Apophis... Um, and but and again, I'm not here uh, counting the the Ptolemaic dynasty, which many Egyptian historians and many Egyptologists who aren't even Egyptian don't consider an Egyptian dynasty because they were Macedonian of origin and they didn't really accept much of the earlier pantheons. I mean, they did to a certain extent. The entire role of the pharaoh 
from the old kingdom, which came before the second intermediate period and the early dynastic period. It's between them, essentially. It's when, for example, the the Great Pyramid of Khufu was built. That was during the Old Kingdom 5,000 years ago. The entire role of the pharaohs was to abrogate and stave off chaos. Uh, that's why, and as we've discussed, and as a concept that to people who are listening, I'm just going to throw out there, while Apophis was lord of chaos, the pharaoh was lord of Matt. And Matt was the antithesis of chaos. It was the means through which, she was the means through which chaos was staved off. And it applied to everybody. It didn't just apply to the pharaoh. The pharaoh was the embodiment of Matt, or supposed to be the embodiment of Matt. But Matt was uh, three aspects to Matt. The three faces of Matt are the cosmological, the religious, and the philosophical. And really, between the religious and the philosophical, there's not that much difference. And it, I mean, to some people who study this aspect of Egypt, it can sound a bit quite a bit boring because she she can be seen as the goddess of bureaucrats, <laughs> as much as she can be seen the goddess of lunar cycles and the goddess of what maintains and ultimately destroys stars. But as I say, she literally speaking to practice mat was to practice forms of law and justice and bureaucracy in ancient Egypt because it was all about maintaining order in a just manner. In fact, you'd, you'd be amazed that the the Beatitudes of Matt are very similar to the Beatitudes of Christ for such a civilization that many people feel it was overindulgent. <laughs> it's hard not to imagine that when you've got the Great Pyramid of Khufu. But again, many Egyptologists and people who have studied the subject to a greater extent than me would probably say that what I'm about to say is contested, and it is contested, but I think there's very good evidence that when you look at the building of the pyramids, it was done through one of the systems of Matt, which was the sense that every single Egyptian citizen, and that isn't an anachronism, Egyptians did have, as I said, a bureaucratic sense of citizenship, Every single Egyptian citizen had to, no matter what your station was, had to contribute towards something socially. So you got no personal gain from it. And they believe that most of the workers who built the pyramids, well, a lot of the the top Egyptologists believe that that is how they got so many thousands of, of Egyptians, not slaves, but Egyptians, to actually build the Great Pyramid, which took over 20 years to obviously build and involved thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uh, labourers. Yeah, you, you, you made me think of a couple of things. I mean, some more important than others. But one is I have this vague re- recollection. I've probably been reading, I haven't literally, listeners, been re- reading Graham Hancock, but Sam knows I, I, I'm often reading sort of off kilter things about these topics. But I seem to remember reading something about Set being very much associated with the desert and the threat that the desert presented to, you know, well, the Nile Valley because it's surrounded mm-hmm. and it represented the chaos. But also of a connection between the uh, Hyksos and the desert, which I can't remember thoroughly, but, but a lot of the story was about 
ancient um, carvings in in the Egyptian desert of ships, mm-hmm. uh, which you remember, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, which I think the book I was reading speculated was something to do with, as you said, Western Semitic Hyksos. But anyway, leaving that aside for a second, the thing that you said about Mart, I think is really important because on the one hand, you've got the war between order and chaos uh, as one theme. And then you, you've raised this theme of Mart, which is order. I, I think in a kind of, you'd probably be insulted by this sort of, you know, random characterization, but, but it, but it sounds a bit Taoist, you know, about balance and order that must be maintained to project cosmic order down onto Earth or something like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, they're deeply connected concepts. So, you know, the, they, they say that the, the creation myth, for example, the, the Canaanite version of it, you know, God creates the world by vanquishing the chaos of the sea. And that's what our civilization is, is this state of order divinely created that involves defeating chaos but there was always in myth as you know myth has a strange relationship to time it it can be pseudo history but it's not merely pseudo history because myth can always repeat itself and there was always the threat of the chaos returning so I i think way outside of the geographical kind of bounds of this conversation but nevertheless a very nice representation of that is in norse myth- mythology where you have a giant chaos dragon who's defeated i can't remember his name now actually the midgard is is one of his names he's got because it goes back to old norse but the the the, the worm of midgard or the serpent of midgard i think is one of his I think I, I can't remember. Yeah, um, I, I had another name in my mind. It's gone. It is. He's got a longer name and then an even longer name that's in Old Norse. So you've got like the modern Norse version and then you've got like an Anglicization, which is like the Serpent of Midgard. I know that one name that he later takes is Arubaroth mm-hmm. because he's defeated mm-hmm. and then he's made to bite his own tail, circling the world, or probably all three worlds, if you know what I mean, in Norse myth, but circling yeah. things. And he bites his tail and he becomes the Uruboros figure that many people are familiar with. But at the end of time, he lets go of his tail and chaos is unleashed. Ragnarok happens and it's the twilight of the idols and all, all that sort of thing. But that notion of chaos camp at, in what they say in, in Urzite and Enzite, in beginning times and end times, mm-hmm. is there in the Bible as well. So Leviathan is there. Yahweh says to Job, were you there when I created Leviathan, actually? Which raises another point that I'll return to, because that's another mm-hmm. twist. Were you there when I created Leviathan? So Leviathan is there. Chaos is there at the beginning when God, you know, in Genesis, clears the space within the chaos, mm-hmm. separates the light from the dark, etc., etc. But Leviathan appears right at the end uh, in Apocalypse, where, you know, in, in, yeah. in you know, in the apocalypse, where he becomes the uh, seven, the red dragon, as, as the seven-headed monster, but but it's the same monster. It's Leviathan there at the end of it. It was associated, yeah, by Christians with Leviathan, yeah. Uh, so that, that what I'm saying is that the business of yes, chaos and order are complete opposites, and they confront each other at the beginning and the end of time. But in the meantime, of course, the problem is Mart, the maintenance of order through the rituals, through sacrifice and many other things. And normal principles, but also, yes, absolutely. People like Richard Dawkins, I've heard saying it, and Sam Harris love to attribute anything that they consider to be intelligent 
So Egyptian civilization, they anachronistically like to impose a secularism on it. Oh, they didn't really believe in Ra, or they didn't really believe in... No, I mean, they are idiots to begin with. If you read the pyramid texts, which is where we get a lot of the stuff of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, or any of the steelies that make up how people understand anything about what we're now talking about, a lot of it is spells against Apophis, against Chaos, because Apophis was also known as the Eater of Souls. So it was thought that he would uh, eat the souls of the dead. Ka, as they're known as in ancient Egyptian language. And what do they mean by spells? Well, you can read them and you can. they don't really make sense to us, but they, they made perfect sense to Egyptians at the time. And this was done whether you were a peasant or whether you were a, a pharaoh or a vizier. Spells were put on your tomb. Um, the, 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 the proper rituals were carried out, like your heart was left in your body. Your heart had to be weighed. Often you'll see Matt depicted with wings ostrich wings or sometimes she's just depicted with a single ostrich feather because it was believed and you can try and make head nor tail of this and in some way or the other that when you passed into the underworld not into aru which was egyptian heaven but the underworld when you passed into the underworld after death your heart would be weighed and if it was less than what one ostrich feather weighs then you would not pass into heaven a ostrich is a native to egypt or what uh, yeah, well, they used to be. Yeah, I don't know if they still are, to be honest. I've never seen one kicking about the place when I was there, to be uh, honest. But then again, there are lots of stuff in Egypt that you don't, you wouldn't necessarily um, see. Well, they, they do say in, in uh, I'm talking about Blake's interpretation of the book of Job. So Blake created mm-hmm. illustrations to the book of Job, and he depicts mm-hmm. Leviathan as quite crocodile-looking and behemoth as quite hippopotamus-looking. That That's because there was a tradition outside of the Old Testament book of Job, um, a sort of apocryphal tradition, in which Leviathan and behemoth were Egyptian animals. Um, but I, personally, I think that's, that's sort of nonsense in terms of what people originally meant in the book of Job. But nevertheless, it's a very long-standing mm-hmm. tradition. Um But I want to say a couple of things. One I'll just mention is that when you were saying earlier that the emphasis in Egyptian mythology is more on Mart than on the defeat of Apophis or or Set, I've heard that put down to the difference between the Nile and the Tigris and Euphrates, which were much more volatile and required a lot more maintenance, could collapse, you know, the irrigation systems. So there was a more... imminent threat of chaos in Mesopotamia than there was in Egypt. I'll just mention that because mm-hmm. thought, you know, that's a mm-hmm. materialist instinct coming out there. You know, they have this sort of slightly different emphasis. But one other thing I wanted to mention for the benefit of our listeners is that this thing about storm gods and wind, I, I think is much more important than is commonly understood outside of academia. And the reason I say that is that, you know, angels are always flying around with wings I think of those Babylonian gods that have multiple wings and they're gods of the wind. And, you know, the whole business of being storm gods in a, in a desert, which Set becomes, which Yahweh was, so far as I understand it, and Baal, as I say. But it's often occurred to me that although the ancient understanding of a lot of physical things was, wasn't as bad as people make out, nevertheless, it seems to me that mm-hmm. wind, wind to us is a kind of an annoyance, unless you're a sailor, you know, and you, it's basically, that's how we see it. But it seems to me that at some point in history, wind must have been thought of as space moving. 
if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and, really? and they're always saying, you know, such and such a god was the god of the four directions mm-hmm. um, and is depicted with four wings. That happens a lot in Babylon, happens a lot in the iconography, incidentally, of ancient Egypt. But, you know, it seemed to me that that makes sense if you think of wind as space moving and space being the kind of, not the Newtonian abstract space, the, you know, mathematical space, but mm-hmm. space being God's container in which everything is. For that to move around, much yeah. more, it must feel like God moving, you know. So, so I just want to throw those two sort of asides at you. The wind. Well, and in and Egypt, you had very odd winds. When yeah. I look it up on YouTube to this day, the sandstorms in Egypt are, are biblical. <laughs> uh, they, they're unbelievable. They, they, they can be deadly. People have died in them very recently. They were apocalyptic, I guess, to so-called primitive civilizations. Again, I look at the Egyptian civilization sometimes and really doubt any relevance to the term primitive when attributing to civilizations like that. But I completely agree. And so when you consider wind in the context of Egypt, when you have different types of wind with different names, which you still get, to this day, very dangerous winds. Like here in, in, in these islands, uh, have relatively tame winds. Don't get me wrong, we can sometimes have really bad winds, but there's nothing really that distinct about them. Although they're really freezing up here in Scotland, cut right through you. But you know what I mean? W- wind in Egypt had a very destructive form. I didn't know that, eh? And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, um, I wonder how that pans out for, further uh, north of Egypt. The reason I ask that is because of this business of there being so many wind gods, yes. But Yahweh was one of, if I remember correctly, one of the 40 sons of El in, in, in Canaanite religion. And he was the mm-hmm. tribal god of, of ancient Hebrews, Jews. But he was very much a... Because he was, he was a storm god, but he was a storm god of the desert, is my recollection. Um, so that ties in quite nicely with what you were saying about set, but that in turn reminded me of something that you were telling me about a week or so ago. And it's basically this, I think maybe around 2200 years BC, sometime around there, you were talking about these desert tribes, peoples, um, uh, one of whom seemed to have, you know, the, what were they called, Sam? Come and remind me. The, the Shasu. Yeah, the Shasu, that's it. And one of them had the, they were the Shasu Yahweh, Yahweh, the oldest known form of the tetragrammaton is in Egyptian hieroglyphs. This struck me as really interesting because those guys are in exactly the right place to be picking up on wind gods, you know, the storm god of the desert. Um, but aren't they also in the frame as, as candidates for being the Hyksos or related to the Hyksos? No, they come much after them. After that, right. But again, there's nothing left of the, at least to my knowledge, and I, I Modern stuff might contradict this, but very little to nothing is left of who the Hyksos were or what they believed. As I say, they took on Egyptian characteristics and eventually just merged in the Egyptian population as opposed to the period when other foreign, what's the word? I don't want to start sounding xenophobic here. Is that what you say? Foreign hordes. <laughs> when the foreign essentially invaded Egypt, when they were expelled, we know that they were expelled. They were defeated militarily. Ramses II defeated them. Uh, Amenhotep III is a great one. Tutmos III as well, who's probably the second greatest 
evolved the pharaohs. But the 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 Hexos we don't know. But the, their god was demonite because at that point Set was. I think we, we haven't mentioned it yet that Set. So I'll go to any of the future to go back, so to speak. It's really interesting to me, especially when I really started to go beyond simple, and I don't mean that in a condescending manner to anybody, but simple so-called Egyptology, in which you learn about the gods and the rituals and and what have you. But as to what the ancient Egyptian religion became, because it didn't just stop. There's this idea introduced by European empires that Egyptian civilization just stopped and it often had racial connotations. There was a great white civilization that just ended, you know, and that was a definitive end point. Of course, that's absurd. It's no coincidence to anybody except for somebody really stupid that Neoplatonism was uh, essentially formed in Egypt by Plotinus, Plotinus, whoever the hell you pronounce his name. And they identified Yahweh with Set, Typhon, evil gods. They identified Set, the Egyptian god, with the Greek Typhon and Yahweh. And so to then go back to understand the demonization of Set, do you want me to go into that? I, I'd love you to talk more about it, in, in, but before you do, can I just take the absolutely obvious, which <laughs> that all sounds an awful lot like what they call Gnosticism, you know, it was a Yahweh. Well, exactly, that, 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 that is the point. That, that, that So Set certainly takes on demiurgical qualities after his demonization, uh, and I think that there is, and that, that probably would be a discussion for another time, I, th- I think that, in the Egyptian religion, I'm not saying the Egyptian religion was proto-Gnosticism, but I think the the early Gnostics arose from these splinters that I'm talking about because the Egyptian religion didn't just stop. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Alexandria was the, the centre of Gnosticism, Sethian Gnosticism, and that Neoplatonism and other modes of belief that became intertwined with the Abrahamic faiths, including, if you want to go even further, the Druze faith, for example, was founded in Egypt. Even though there are no Druze in Egypt now, it was founded in Egypt. You can still actually go to the mosque in which it was founded. Um, By the way, if you don't know, Druze has a lot of Neoplatonic and Gnostic elements to it. Druze gave birth to the Alawites and they're very Neoplatonic. So for Set, the fact that Greek Platonists would tie Yahweh in with Set is remarkable given how vilified Set was at that point. And at that point, uh, uh, the Neoplatonists, I'm not here now talking about Gnostics, which came much later, but with the Neoplatonists, still was people who who would have genuinely believed that, that Set was an evil entity to put it in context i mean do you want me to go into the set the osiris go for it yeah so the most common form of it is actually the film the lion king hamlet also follows this the, the osiris narrative it's a narrative trope in which osiris is essentially the archetypal king in in egyptian terms he was the king of the underworld a role he took from anubis um, who, who was much earlier part of the Ogoad, the, the original pantheon of Egyptian gods, which included Amun and, and Ra. So Osiris was the archetypal king and protected Egypt essentially from chaos. Set was his brother and a, a, an agent of chaos who murdered him in order to try and steal his wife, who was Isis. Fair enough. Yeah. However, this is the most simplistic form of the myth that I'm, I'm telling. Essentially, Set tries to, and this pertains to what you were saying before about the desert. Uh, 
So Set attempts to rape Isis. He takes the form of a bull to do so, and Isis takes the form of a cat with a, a knife for a tail in order that she can run away from him. I'm, I'm, I'm only saying that stuff because it's weird, but I don't know why they took specific forms. But anyway, before he can catch her, he ejaculates, and that busts the desert. It, essentially like an expansive death, because the desert was associated with chaos. And a complete antithesis to Osiris. When Set killed Osiris, this is going to sound weird, this isn't in The Lion King, Isis has sex with his dead body, which ejaculates out the Nile, and that is Horus, their child. There would be no Egyptian civilization, as everybody knows, without the Nile. If you look at a satellite image of Egypt, you will see it's just all around the Nile is the cities, the vegetation, everything. Like... 90-odd percent of the population live around the Nile. That is why Egypt was able to sustain an advanced and very productive civilization is the Nile. The battles between Horus and Set, because thereafter Set kills society, essentially reigns supreme for a while. So chaos reigns supreme until the return and birth of Horus. I think we're probably getting a bit deep into it now. I've got this feeling that a huge thing has opened up in front of us that we could talk about forever because you've just made a connection that I hadn't really thought about, which is the myth of Osiris and the circularity. to it. It's a classic, as you say, you know, the king and the rebirth and all the rest of it. But that is part of this chaos camp as well because the tradition with Baal, the reason we know about the defeat of Leviathan by Baal is from the ritual texts in which Baal was enthroned all over again every year on his holy mountain, which basically becomes Mount Zion. But he was, I think it was in the spring, but whenever it was, he was enthroned all over again and made Lord. And the Jews had pretty much the same ritual with pretty much the same purpose. I think it becomes the Feast of Tabernacles. But uh, if the, mm-hmm. the way that the Canaanite story is preserved in Jewish tradition because people believe that the book of Job was probably written in in a sort of immediately pre-exilic period, so whenever that is. But the roots of the myth go back a thousand years or more. So how was that story kept alive? And essentially it's kept alive through hymns that are sung in Mm -hmm. the Feast of Tabernacles, where Yahweh is reappointed every year, Mm -hmm. uh, and the ritual takes the form of reliving, recounting, how he conquered the chaos, Leviathan and so on. And those mm-hmm. hymns were maintained long after and, the, and that are kind of actually cut and pasted into the book of Job. So you've made a fantastic connection between the Osiris myth and the chaos camp. We were talking, yeah. but like mm-hmm. I say, it's such a huge issue and we've been going for an hour now. You're definitely going to come back and talk again because I'd like to pick up on that and explore that in more depth if you were up for that. But Absolutely. you've also... Because that's about my immediate interest, which is the book of Job, Mm -hmm. and the issue of chaos. And if anybody cares, the reason I'm interested is because I think Blake inherits from that some intuitions about the status of chaos that become quite important to him. But that's my immediate concern. My big issue I I realise I've been thinking about for quite a while now is to do with Neoplatonism. Uh, where basically, to crudely characterise the argument, I I blame Neoplatonism for the kind of ideology of hierarchy that we have today. And Mm -hmm. um, 
that's very crude. And I'm not I'm not saying, you know, the Neoplatonists are the bad guys or something like that. I, I think in a sense that they, they, they won an intellectual victory. And as part of that, their ideas became the basis of an ideology of hierarchy that was transmitted by the, the church. So through Neoplatonist influence, something that's my big idea and of course as a reader you know that you and I have, have, have vintagely disagreed about whether that's a good or a bad thing <laughs> yes I mean my position is increasingly that of an antinomian of a ranter mm-hmm. type persuasion you know completely mm-hmm. anti-hierarchical and at war with the church over that and I think that's fundamentally Blake's uh, position but my point is that I have to therefore the church, do you mean the, the Catholic church or do you mean like the archetypal kind of I kind of meant the Catholic Church, the early church, then the Catholic Church, and then subsequent churches. But I'm talking about literally hierarchy, which is, you know, I was I was talking to a Neoplatonist about how uh, Pseudo-Dionysus, the Oropagite of, I think, the 5th century, sort of wholesale yeah. Neoplatonism in, into early Christianity. And I think he was the first to use the term hierarchia, into to describe the structure of hierarchical authority, your divine org chart, so to say. But this is such a huge issue, Sam. That's why it's so central to, to arguments we've had in the past, but things that... I, I think that, that, that regardless of where we might disagree about the centrality of it, I think we could agree whether it's in Canaanite, whether it's in any of the Mesopotamian traditions or anywhere around the world, which I'm sure have very similar concepts. Certainly from what I've read, there's a lot in common, even like, you know, as far away as Papua New Guinea, (laughs) there's a lot in common, which isn't some great revelation. But what I think we would both agree on is that these were foundational in terms of the manner in which human beings came to understand and organise, whether it be materially or spiritually. Would you agree with that? Like I said, I just got the sudden feeling of like, we've talked about so much tonight. And one of the things that really struck me in what you said, something I already knew in theory, but you just made it very vivid for me, is about the continuation of Egyptian culture, esotericism, Neoplatonism, its impact Mm -hmm. on the West, and um, the centrality of those ideas. And to me, I mean, I am going to have to wrap up now, but it's such a central notion and it ties into me to really modern debates. You, you may know, Sam, I've been looking at the ideas of like Timothy Morton. And one of his ideas is that the dawn of civilization is what he calls a severance. And it happens in thought and it is to do with establishing a completely new mindset. That is a long time ago. But the point is that that's all up for grabs again. And chaos is increasingly central to our lives. If you look at modern politics and the situation with ecology. But that's something very abstract. And we definitely haven't got time to go into that. So, Sam, I, I want to thank you, in, you know, hugely for, for joining us. I mean, you and I, before this, were talking about what, how we're going to structure, what can we actually talk about? But I think we've wandered into all kinds of interesting areas, and, and, and particularly toward the end, what you were saying was highly suggestive to me about how my short-term interest in this chaos theme, chaos camp, which, as you say, is much more widely spread than just the, the Middle or Near East or anything. What, what is really striking is how much the mythology has in common across the region of the Middle East and from Egypt up to Babylon was what we were really getting at. I would urge you to look into the manner in which uh, 
for example, there's a paper about how Matt, it's different representations in like Yoruba civilization of <laughs> sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, they have words for Matt in the Yoruba language. This is like mainstream etymology. So it, it clearly, we just don't know how and when and, and why, you know. Uh, we, it, it's a very stupid assumption to imagine that Egyptians didn't travel southwards towards what they believed was their homeland. And as you say, you could literally talk about this stuff forever because it is, you are talking about the history of, of all known civilization, although I'm not saying that I know it. Yeah. I've got to pull us up, Sam, because we, we've, we've talked for so long, but there's yeah. such an interesting uh, discussion for me and I hope for our listeners. Uh, speaking of which, can I remind you, whoever you are, to come to Substack and subscribe to The Traveller in the Evening after you've played the podcast. And if you're in the right mood, feel free to take out a paid subscription to buy me a few coffees or something. But with that said, thanks to you, Sam, and thanks to everyone listening. Thank you very much.